If you got your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Today we are going to be talking about a tear among the wheat. We're going to be talking about a man by the name of Simon Magnus or Simon the Magician. It's a young boy by the name of Jeremy. Great kid, athlete, had a lot of friends, very respectable young man. Went to school, made pretty good grades, just your average American young boy. Parents took him to church every Sunday. In fact, they would get him up early enough to take him to Sunday school. And he remembers going to Sunday school when he was 12 years old. And something just hit a little different when the Sunday school teacher talked about what Jesus willingly paid and the great love that Jesus showed for his life. He left there from Sunday school. He went into the worship service. And all throughout the singing, what was going on, all he could think about were the words that rang in his ears about what his Sunday school teacher had taught that morning. As the pastor got up there and began to preach about the cost of living for Jesus and what Jesus freely gave for him and for all those that were sitting out there, Jeremy couldn't help himself. He went forward. He prayed with the pastor, and he got saved. As Jeremy grew up in church, he he continued to go on Sunday mornings, but then all of a sudden he graduated high school and he went off to college and while going off to college he thought to himself I'm gonna I need to find a church uh, I'm moving away from mom and dad he was a little bit anxious of getting away from all of his friends and he thought I need to to find myself a church and well just like any freshman in college it seems he found himself staying out a little bit later on Saturday night so that he couldn't quite get up on Sunday morning And Jeremy went about a handful of times while he was a freshman in college, but whenever he came home, of course, his mom and dad made sure he was up, and he went to church, and he did all the right steps. Well, it was about his sophomore year, he went back, and he had decided after spending a summer with his parents, he was definitely going to get involved in the church. He was going to find a church that he needed to be involved in while in college, and instead of finding a church, he found a young lady. This young lady had never grown up in church, never been to church, and so he found it easier to spend his Sunday mornings with her than he did spending his Sunday mornings with God. His mom and dad constantly talked to him about this and said, it's very important for you to find a church, to get involved in a church, to go to church, to to really dig in deep and find your relationship with God. But during his sophomore year, he took a college biology class. And while in there, his professor was so convincing that the Big Bang was real and that God was not, that Jeremy began to waver in his faith and believe what his professor told him. He thought, man, if my parents just knew this, they would would forget everything that they've ever thought. And if they could just be a little bit more intellectual and they could understand exactly the truth about how it all began. And so Jeremy decided that after the end of his sophomore year, he was going to go home and have that talk with his parents. And so he sat down with his parents and he began to explain to them the Big Bang. And he thought for sure he had described it in such a, a passionate way like his professor did that his parents could not deny it, that there's no way they could turn away from it. But both of his parents looked at him and said, no, son, that's wrong. That's just wrong. In fact, his parents said, no, our faith is stronger than that. In fact, looked at him and said, and son, we remember when you were 12, when you, when you went down front and you prayed and you gave your life to Jesus. And son, we just, we just want you to know that what you believe is not right. And he said, well, couldn't it be a possibility of both of them? Could it not be that God used the Big Bang Theory? And his parents said, no, we don't believe in that. Well, that just disenfranchised Jeremy completely and He didn't know where he was or what he was doing at that time. 
He went off to college his junior year. He decided to live off campus. He got an apartment. He asked his girlfriend, Sarah, to move in with him, and so they began to live together while in college. He finished up his college education, and every now and then, he and Sarah would go to church, but it was just on occasion. He finally graduated from college. He moved back home. He moved to his hometown. He got married. They had a couple of kids, and they would go to church unless there was something more important that came up that could draw them away from church because church was every week, and so it was okay to miss every once in a while. So they raised their kids up, and it wasn't too much longer as his kids got a little bit older and they became teenagers that his father contracted cancer, and it was terminal. And Jeremy began to blame God. In fact, he got very angry with God. His father was given three months to live, and Jeremy said, God, that's not fair. My father has lived for you, and he loves you, and if you won't heal him, I can't believe in you. Unfortunately, three months later, his father passed away, and Jeremy became so angry with God that he said, I'll never go back to church again. And he kept it for quite some time. In fact, 10 years had passed, and Jeremy had not been in church. His wife continued to take the kids on occasion, but Jeremy stayed at home every single Sunday when mom and the kids would go off to church. Jeremy was so angry with God, and He just didn't want to hear anything about it. And mom continued to pray for him. And mom would continue to try to reach out to him. But every time she would reach out and talk to him about the importance of knowing Jesus and living for Jesus, Jeremy would blow up on her. He would just completely ignore what she had to say. So mom just continued to pray. But it so happened that a year later, his mom passed away. Jeremy was really devastated. Everything seemed to be falling down around him. His kids were off in college Mom and dad were both gone. He was having marital issues. It seemed like nothing was going right. And he just got angrier and angrier with God. He was so frustrated. So frustrated. But the pastor had retired from the church and a new pastor had come in. And he would try to go by and see Jeremy. Jeremy would find excuses how not to be at home. He had to go get some ice or a friend needed his help or whatever he could get by with. But after everything came crumbling down around him, he finally decided to let the pastor come on over. And they decided to have a talk. Jeremy was concerned because he thought the pastor would be very judgmental. He had not been in church in 12, 13 years. He wasn't living for Jesus. He didn't talk about Jesus. He didn't read his Bible. He didn't do anything. And so he thought he was going to be judged. And instead, the pastor came with a different expectation. The pastor began to share his own story with Jeremy. The pastor sat Jeremy down. He said, he said I had an upbringing just like you. My parents took me to church. He said, I never wanted to go. He said, I went because they made me go. He said, you know what? At 15 years old, I lost my dad. I was a young man. I lost my dad. And I became very angry with God. In fact, I said, I was never going to go to church again myself. He said, but at 21 years old, I was working and a friend of mine invited me to go to a revival. And against my better judgment, I went. I had no desire to go, but he kept pestering me about coming. And I finally said, okay, I'll go if you'll leave me alone. And so I went to the revival. He said, the pastor got up there and he began to preach on a tear among the wheat. And he began to preach about how tares and wheat look the exact same. They grow up. And until it's almost harvest time, until finally the wheat 
gives a head of grain and shows that it's different, that it becomes fruitful, that it becomes something worthy of collecting and eating from. He said, and the pastor talked about it in that revival, and he said, you know, there's many tares among the wheat in the church. He said, and they're so good and disguised that oftentimes other Christians can't tell them apart. He said, but God knows. And he said, I've almost felt like the preacher looked right at me and said, you are a tear. He said, it convicted me and it cut me to the heart so deep. And I had to look at my life and say, you know what? Even though I grew up in church and even though I went to church and I went to Sunday school and I took all the right steps. And he said, I had to realize that he was right. I had never given my life to Christ. I had never surrendered my all to him. And it changed my life. I immediately decided right then and there, I was not going to be a tear any longer. It was easy to fit in and just follow the mold and look like everybody else. But God wanted full-on surrender. And he looked over at Jeremy and he said, you have a choice. You can remain a tear and find eternal destruction. Or you can turn it over to Jesus and you can find eternal life. And I would tell you today that just like Jeremy has a choice, so do you. I don't know if you're a wheat or a tear, but God knows. And God can see through. And I'm here to tell you, we're going to look at a gentleman who had a false faith. He looked the part. He even made it into the church, even into the early church. And he looked the part. But he was simply a tear among the wheat. Look with me in Acts chapter 8. We're going to see kind of an introduction here in verses 4 through 8. It just simply says this, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them and multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy in that city in other words Philip went down there and preached among the Samaritans and there seemed to be a revival lives were being changed hearts were being touched people were being saved miracles were being done it was just an amazing time there in Samaria and you would think that when you read that story, you would think everything is great. But he's going to take a pause. And he's going to show you that even when everything is going great, Satan is still sowing tares. Look at verse 9. We're going to look at four views of Simon's false fate this morning. First, we're going to see an incorrect view of self. Verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. I'm going to tell you, I used to love to watch America's Got Talent. Anybody else in here like to watch that show? My favorite acts, I always wanted to see one go through, I loved the magician acts. There's just something about it. It's cool. It's flashy. There's just something about it that I would always love to watch those tricks because it was just like you're trying to figure it out. How did you make that happen? Because every one of us know it isn't real. It's not real. It's an illusion. 
In fact, now they're not called magicians as much as they're called illusionists. Now, that's exactly what Simon was. He was an illusionist. He seemed to have great power, but there really was no power within him. He got people on his side. In fact, the Bible talked about in the Old Testament that this is something that the people of Israel were supposed to turn away from. In Deuteronomy 18, in verse 10, it begins, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not anointed such for you. He said, you don't need to listen to them. You don't need to listen to these false prophets. You don't need to listen to these men who seem to create with their own hands. You don't need to pay attention to them because they are lying to you. They are wrong. You don't need them. And I'm here to tell you today, you don't need to contact a spiritist to conjure up the dead to speak to somebody you want to hear from. If they're a Christian, they're not coming back. They're not going to speak to you. They're in heaven. You don't need to seek the stars to find out what direction God wants you to go in. You don't need to hope that you open up the right fortune cookie after the Chinese restaurant. You don't need those things. You have the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, and he will guide you in the direction you need to go in. And that's what he told the people of Israel. You have the God who created the stars. You don't need to consult the stars. We don't need these kind of works. We don't need these kind of things. And so, in fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 and in Revelation 22, these people will not find themselves in the kingdom of God. God stood against them greatly. In fact, this guy had such a wrong view of himself. It said they said about him, this man is the great power of God. The word power there is the word dunamis. is the exact same word used in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which is talking about the power of God, which was the Holy Spirit. This guy didn't have the Holy Spirit. He had a false sense of power. In fact, he even claimed in his own words, according to Justin Martyr, that he was the Messiah. Justin Martyr was a first century historian. We find this guy was, had a very false sense of who he was. But it says that the people in the land heeded him because he astonished them. I pray that we're not so easily fooled or swayed. But this man practiced magic arts. And he had a wrong view of himself. But I'm here to tell you, whether you practice magic arts or not, many of us have a wrong view of ourselves. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, to be honest, the first step of becoming a Christian is to understand we are poor in spirit. It's to recognize we have nothing to offer God. There is nothing that should make God choose us. There's nothing that should make God want us to be saved. There is nothing that should make God want to have sent his son to die on a cross for our sins. Nothing. And when you think about it, we're poor in spirit. The idea is that we have nothing to offer God, but praise God. He died for the whole world. He died for the vagabonds like you and me. He died for the lowly and the sinful that we might have salvation. But we've got to have the right view of self. I often think of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee stood thus before God in the middle of the temple and thanked God that he wasn't like the tax collectors and the vagabonds. He fasted twice a week and he gave of tithes of all of his goods. And he did all these great things. In other words, he stood there before God and he said, God, aren't you glad to have me? But it says the tax collector was on his face before God, would not so much as even look up to God, but he said it beat his breast. And he said, woe is me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one do you think went down to the house hole? That tax collector did. You see, we got to have a right view of ourselves. Simon had a wrong view. He thought there was something in him that made him better than everybody else. He thought that he could do the impossible. He even thought of himself as being God. In fact, many believe that Simon was the very first Gnostic that came out during these times. And his follower, Menander. But Simon had an incorrect view of self. Secondly, he had an incorrect view of salvation. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And when you look at this, you think, he did it, he got saved. He took the steps, because look at what it says in verse 13. He believed, he was baptized, and he continued. Let me tell you something. I can tell you today that there are a lot of people in church that do those three things. They believe, they've been baptized, and they continue. But the Bible makes it very clear that there are going to be some that are standing before God and say, God, didn't we cast out demons for you? Didn't we heal the sick for you? Didn't we do all these mighty miracles for you? And he's going to look at them and say, depart from me for I never knew you. The Bible makes it clear that it is so much more. And I tell people this all the time. They say, well, it's real simple. All you have to do is believe. Well, uh, James 2, 19, even the demons believe and tremble. So it's got to be more than belief. It can't just be having great thoughts about God. There has to be more to it. There has to be a full-on surrender to God because the demons know more about Jesus than you probably do. The difference is, is they don't live for him. That's why James in James chapter 2 made this statement. He said, faith without works is dead. He said, it's not that I work for my faith. He said, I work because of my faith. I don't work to earn my salvation. I work because I'm saved. I work to show that the fruit is real and genuine and true. How about you? Man, I read this in James Boyce Montgomery's commentary, and I thought, you know, there's no way for me to just describe it. So I want to read it to you for a moment. And his question is simply this, if Simon was not born again. He said, if Simon was not a believer, though he thought he was, then his case is a warning to anybody who thinks that just because he or she has made a profession of faith or has gone through certain motions expected of Christians that he or she is right with God for that reason, this is not the case. About 30 years ago, when I was working for the evangelical magazine Christianity Today, editor Carl F.H. Henry, who was effective at bringing different branches of the church together, did a series of parallel articles accompanied by an editorial in which he pointed out a strange anomaly regarding different churches' practice of baptism. 
he noted that those that practiced infant baptism were tending to delay it later and later because so many disagreed with the practice. While on the other hand, those who believed in adult baptism were tending to baptize children earlier and earlier for the sake of gaining new members and enlarging their roles. The ages of those being baptized were moving closer and closer together. I know nothing about that tendency personally, but it occurs to me that something like that happens frequently in churches. We are often so interested in getting members into our churches that we make the demands for membership almost meaningless. As long as a person will say a few right things, we consider the person to be regenerate and proceed to the baptism. Then we add such persons to our role saying we increased our congregation by 13% last year and the year before that we only increased at 10%. Things are really going well. None of this is necessarily the work of God. I suspect that when we add members to the church that easily, what we are actually doing is inoculating them against the real article against the gospel. Compare how churches function today in terms of membership and how they function in what was probably the strongest period of all for American churches, the age of the Puritans. In those days, membership in the churches did not represent a large percentage of the population. Perhaps only 6 or 7% of the population as contrasted with 45 or 46% now. Yet the churches were tremendously effective. One reason is that today, if a church has a membership of 2,000 people, it probably knows where about 1,000 of those members are and about 500 come to church. But in the days of the Puritan, if a church had 500 members, 1,000 were in the church and the congregation was having an impact on at least 2,000. The Puritan practice suggests that it is not wise to make membership in a church too easy. Yet when Simon came to the apostles saying he believed in Jesus Christ and wanted to be baptized, the apostles accepted his profession. That was necessary because as human beings, we cannot see into another person's heart. All we can do is judge on the basis of what we call credible profession. This is what Philip did. When Simon confessed Christ, Simon was baptized, though I believe he probably was not a true believer. Can I tell you, I have baptized many like that myself. There have been many people that I have baptized that did not have a real faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know? Because they did not persevere. They went back to their old lifestyle and continued to do the things they were doing before. Jesus actually told a parable about this in Matthew chapter 13. And it's a parable that just speaks so much to this case. In Matthew 13 and verse 7, he was talking about the parable of the sower. And he said, in some, talking about the seed, fell among the thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. The interpretation of that is found in verse 22. It says, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. I'll tell you that what he's talking about there is people who claim to know Christ but never change and they go back to the way they used to be. Simon was that kind of man. We don't see it right here quite yet in this story because what we see is we see a man who believed, was baptized, and continued. But we're about to see a sign that shows it wasn't real. Let's look thirdly at an incorrect view of the Holy Spirit beginning in verse 14. And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, 
who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. There's three reasons why Peter and John showed up at the church. Three reasons why Peter and John showed up. Because a lot of people say, well, did, could Philip not handle it on his own? Well, there was such a tremendous harvest that they believed that they sent two apostles down there to help out with the harvest. But not only that, it would be important for them to confer with the church because Samaria was one of their most hated groups of people. And if the Samaritans had just gone off and formed their own church and the apostles didn't agree with it and they, didn't, they weren't a part of it, then more than likely there would have been a two different churches instead of being one church, instead of being the church of Jesus Christ. So Peter and John went down there to confer and make certain that it was going on. But also, verse 15 tells us that they went down there to make sure that they had received the Holy Spirit. Because in verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people try to make a case here in this passage of Scripture that that's a second blessing, that there's a second gift of the Holy Spirit because this has happened here. It should have happened the moment they got saved because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not children of the King. We're not children of God. But you need to understand this was the first time this happened in Samaria. It's the first time a Samaritan got saved. And God wanted to show the, wanted to show the Jewish nation that he accepted the Gentiles just as he accepted them. And so when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Peter and John could not deny what God was doing there in Samaria. In fact, they would go back and proudly proclaim that the gospel is proclaimed in Samaria and Samaritans could be saved as well. God showed up and showed off. This is not a place where we should get theology from because we need to understand that today God comes upon you the moment you get saved. But look at what happens here in verse 17. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Simon was believed. He was baptized. And he continued with them. But he did not have the Holy Spirit. That's how we know he wasn't a genuine follower of Christ. He wanted to buy it. You, you may say, well, why did, he do, why did he go through the steps? He didn't want to lose his people. He didn't want to lose his influence. He wanted to take the influence he had outside of the church and now incorporate the influence he would have inside the church. He wanted to be a leader. He wanted to be standing up on top. He wanted to be able to do the same thing the apostles did. He wanted the power, not the presence of Jesus. Tell you, there's a lot of people that want to make Jesus their Savior, but they don't want to make him their Lord. You can't have one or the other. You have to have both. He's the only way to be saved. He's the only one that you have to surrender to. And if you've not surrendered to him, you, like Simon, will find yourself on the outside looking in. And he said in verse 19, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want the power. I want to be able to do what you're doing. I want to be able to have that kind of power. I want people to look to me to be able to do what you're doing. I want to be seen. Give it to me. You need to understand something. The power of the gospel is free. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Come to me, all you who are hungry. And I'll give you bread. Bread you cannot buy. It's free. 
Come to me all who thirst. It's free. You can't buy it, not with money. It's already been bought for you. It's already been paid for you. He wants to give you the bread of life and the living water that will never go away. And when you do accept those things, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the great power of God comes upon you. And it's not for you to be seen. It's for God to be seen through you. Man, Simon didn't understand this. And Peter rebukes him. Look at verse 20. And Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. J.B. Phillips says that's not a very good interpretation. He said, Peter literally said this, and I don't go out and tell people I cussed in church. But he literally said, to hell with your money. Because that's where his money was sending him. Peter needed to shake the tree. Peter needed to show him he was wrong. Peter wanted him to see the truth. You can't buy these things. He said, listen to verse 21. This is important. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Peter told him that. You have not part nor portion. Let me tell you something. It's better that a brother in Christ tell you that than one day you stand before God and he tell you that. It's better that somebody go ahead and speak truth into your life and say, listen, you don't have part nor portion. You're not really a Christian. You're not living up to the standard. You're not faithful. You're not doing what God has called you to do. You're not fully surrendered. That's what we need to be doing. If somebody claims to be a believer, a lot of people say, well, the Bible says, don't judge. I hope you come back tonight. You'll see what that means. Because what the Bible's telling you is you don't need to be judging those outside the church, but if somebody professes to be a believer... It's not that we judge them, it's that we keep them on the right track and we speak truth into their life. In this case, Peter said, you have neither part nor portion. In other words, he just point blank told him, he says, you ain't got what we got. And unless you change your heart, you won't have what we have. Unless you turn it over, unless you surrender your all, oh, Simon, you're in great trouble. Finally, we see that Simon had an incorrect view of repentance. Verse 22. Peter says, repent therefore of this, your wickedness. And pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Listen to this. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. A lot of people look at Peter and say, man, he was just rough. Well, I'm going to tell you, sometimes we need a little bit of a wake-up call, don't we? Sometimes we need truth like that spoken into our lives. He just came right out and he said, you need to repent. You need to get right. He says, and pray. In other words, he wanted him to see, man, it's, you better hope that God forgives you. You better hope that God restores you. You better hope that God will change you. For you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Can you imagine? He literally telling him, you are bound by iniquity. It has you chained up. But look at what Simon does in verse 24. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Let me tell you something. I can pray for you. The staff of this church can pray for you. Our deacons can pray for you, but we can't repent for you. 
we'll pray for you. We'll love on you. We'll teach you. We'll guide you. We'll help you. But we can't repent for you. We can't turn your life around. We can't clean you up. We can't change the direction you're going in. We can't do those things. The only one that can do that is Jesus. He told him to repent. He told him, you cry out to God. And instead, Simon goes, no, you cry out to God for me. Repentance is individual. Repentance is personal. And repentance is important. I love what Paul talks about because Paul understood this greatly when he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I believe Paul was talking about somebody there. I think he may have had Judas Iscariot in mind. He may have had Judas Iscariot in mind, a a man who followed Jesus, who walked the path, who did all the things that the other disciples had done. And yet in the end, in the end, he betrayed him. He walked away from him. And there was no fruit in Judas' life. Judas was sorrowful. He even went back and took the money and threw it back into the temple. He was sorry for what he did. But he was not broken and he was not repentant. Sorrow leads to death. Repentance leads to life. It said after this incident with Simon, the church just kept on going. Verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. They didn't allow Simon to distract them from the job they had. Are there tares among the wheat? There are. Jesus told that parable in Matthew 13 that the good sower went out and sowed his seed and wheat sprang up. But in the middle of the night, the enemy went out and sowed his seed among the wheat. And the wheat and tares grew up together. The people asked him, said, should we go in there and should we take the tares out? Should we just remove the tares from the wheat? And he said, no, don't do that in case you pull it up because the tares would actually wrap their roots around the wheat. He said, no, we don't do that. We wait until the harvest time. We wait until the heads of grain come up. And then we go in there with a sickle and we cut it down and then we pull apart the tares from the wheat. And we burn the tares And we keep the wheat. There's coming a day when God is coming back. There's coming a day we're all going to die one day and we're all going to stand before God in judgment. There's several parables where Jesus tells this where he separates the two. The sheep from the goats. The wheat from the tares. And what he's simply showing there is look, God knows who were his. And you make him fool everybody in church. You make him fool everybody in the city. You make him fool everybody in the world. But you'll not fool him. And one day he's going to lay the sickle to the root. And he's going to separate the wheat from the tares. Separate those from life and death. I just ask one question this morning. Are you wheat or a tear?
Do you have a correct view of yourself, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and repentance? Or can you say Simon or Jeremy? Those are my stories. I could say at one time it was my story. But praise God like the old preacher boy. God showed me the difference in what I really needed. And that was turning my life over to him. I hope you have.